I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. This week, to talk about England's victory at Wembley on Sunday and the longer history and future of women's football, I'm joined by Emma John and Natasha Chahal. Emma John is the author of three books, Following On, Wayfaring Stranger and Self-Contained, and the presenter of The Guardian's cricket podcast, The Spin. She has a piece in the current issue of the LRB responding to A Woman's Game, The Rise, Fall and Rise Again of Women's Football by Suzanne Rack. And my colleague Natasha Chahal, as well as head of sales at the LRB, is the founder of the online community Premier Lasses, and she's written a number of pieces on football for the LRB blog since 2019. Hello both, and thank you very much for joining me. Hi. Thank you. So let's talk about Sunday to begin with. I was going to start with saying best moments of the of the match for you, but I, I just found out that Emma, you didn't actually, you couldn't watch it live because you were covering the cricket. Yeah. So there was a there was a the last of the England T Twenty matches against South Africa, which um, yes, yeah, spoiler alert, they lost really badly by like a record margin. Well, a record equally equaling margin. So. Um, uh, yeah, I was at Southampton. We knew, you know, I knew this was going to be a clash of games. And in a way, you know, it was quite nice for the crowd at Southampton who had just watched Joss Butler's team bowled out for 101 in the most limp, pathetic way that uh, it meant that as a result, because the game finished early, they all just left the stands but stayed in the ground and watched watched the, uh, the football on the big screens. And so at the same time that they're doing that, the press pack at Southampton, you have uh, the media centre at one end of the ground because there's uh, you're in the Hilton Hotel, which overlooks the ground. That's where your media box is. But the pavilion and the players are at the opposite side of the ground. The, the, the Aegeus Bowl at Southampton is very big ground. So this always happens is that you get to the end of the game and literally as a journalist, you have to grab your laptop, fold it under your arm and then run, actually kind of run from one end end of the ground all the way around to the other and at the same time we're weaving in and out of these huge crowds of people with their big pints of beer watching on the big screens and we can tell you know I I couldn't see a screen but you know I'd, I'd, I'd double check the score and you could tell from the atmosphere you know that this was kind of tense and that you know neither neither side had scored at this stage and then as we got to the press conference just before Joss Butler, the England cricket captain, walked in. We heard a roar and we knew that England had scored. But obviously that was that was just the first that was just a first goal. So yeah, so I, I kind of was sort of as it was as it was going on, 
all I was aware of were when when the goals happened. And, I, you know, obviously I could hear I could hear the reaction when the extra time goal was scored. And that was lovely. Uh, but I didn't have any time to engage with it whatsoever because I was on deadline and trying to write 750 words about what has gone wrong with England's one day cricket. But Natasha, you were watching. Where were you watching? Yes. Yeah, so I was watching at Wembley. So I don't really remember the game at all because it was so tense and emotions were so heightened and, you know, it was a real sensory overload and everybody's going wild. So I had to re-watch it the next day and I still don't think it properly sunk in. So I'm not sure if I'm that useful in explaining what happened in the game. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, I so I obviously watched it for the first time yesterday and, you know, there is something nice about watching a game when you know that it has a happy ending. Yeah. Uh, because I feel like you can relax and enjoy it a lot more. And the thing that really stood out for me, which would not have stood out if I'd been watching it live, was that Germany's goal was a really good one. I mean, you know, it was a really good one. England's first goal, goal was, a, a, was a, you know, really good piece of, you know, individual work. But um, Germany's was a really, really good counter-attacking team goal. <laughs> and I definitely wouldn't have appreciated that if I'd <laughs> been watching it live at all. My feeling watching that live, you kind of think, I can't believe it, we're ahead, this is amazing. And then, of course, Germany have equalised. Oh, well, that was a fun 10 minutes. Now we're going the usual... <laughs> Heading to penalties. Um, so The other thing I really... The, I think the other moment that really stood out for me in extra time, I th- and I think it was... Gosh, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, whether this was the first half of extra time or the second. I can't quite remember. But there was this amazing passage, this amazing moment when, you know, I mean, everybody's tired, but England were just... They were controlling... This is before they scored again uh, but they were still controlling the pace of play so well and they were controlling um, their possession so well and there was this amazing period where three players all kept the ball off you know fended off really kind of serious German challenges uh, with these and each each one of them kind of you could see their legs kind of telescoping out these huge kind of stretching passes that they made for the ball and it went one two three each woman doing the same thing and that was I think that was the point at which I was like I I can see why they won this because that is incredible control and incredible you know effort uh, incredible stamina and composure. And I think that's what, you know, that's the thing that we really saw in their final goal, wasn't it? We just saw this incredible composure from from everybody. And that is the Wiegmann way, as we know. Lovely use of triangles. <laughs> yes. Yes, I mean, there, there are those questions that, you know, what if, what if Pop hadn't been injured? What if she'd been playing? Were England sort of lucky not to have that? But the way you're talking about it, actually, no, England were the better team. And would have been a better team even if Germany had had their star player. Maybe that's the sort of question you can't. It's the classic thing, isn't it? We, you know, we like to. Um, I mean, basically, the better team on the day is the one that won. I mean, you know, sport is sport. This is the thing you can't get around. Sport is sport. If you won, you were the better team because you won the game. You know, yes, you know, they didn't look the better team in the first half, and um, I have to say that was. I remember. I remember 
as I, I remember in that in that kind of mad dash to the England press conference, actually, I had all I had managed to pick up of the game was the uh, first half stats, which I, I'd seen in a kind of graph form that had been put up on the Guardian minute by minute, and I saw how you know how Germany were dominating possession, how they'd had more shots on goal, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, I absolutely thought, I think a little bit like you thought, Tom, when, when the German goal went in, you know, oh well. Oh well, this is this is where this is heading. But being being the better team basically means doing what you have to do to get the ball in the net more times than the opposition. So I think they were. Yeah. And even if that means the whole team piling into the goalmaster to, to stop it going in. I mean that was that was an amazing save. Um and you were there, Natasha. So how I mean the atmosphere, was it the best football game you've ever attended in terms of atmosphere? I think so. I think I write so often about how women's football is treated differently and how the fans are different and we're much more well behaved. Um, But that definitely wasn't the experience that I had on Sunday. Um, It was much more reminiscent of going to a men's final and it made it much, much more exciting. And, you know, people booing Germany. It's not something that I (laughs) condone because I think, as we've talked, there is, um, you know, an appreciation for any woman and playing at a competitive level. But I think the spirit of football was very much present in that people were getting behind England. And I think as well it's because, you know, it attracted a different crowd as well to the types of people that would usually go to women's football. So I think that's one of the most exciting things about Sunday was that it was just, it was wild. (laughs) It was chaotic. Do you know, it's funny you say that because I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's my question in all of this. Having been to, having been to um, a lot of women's sport, whether it's women's cricket or netball or at the Olympics, places where the atmosphere is completely different to, um, you know, what, what you're used to, you know, going to maybe a Premier League football match on, you know, that's 99.9% men and testosterone fueled aggression there's there's a bit of me I know that it's exciting and you know hooray for the game and hooray that you know uh, men are taking it seriously and all the rest of it but there's a bit of me that doesn't want to share it there's a bit of me that's like do you know what like I like the atmosphere at, at women's games and I don't want it to go down that route and and become a place where I feel uncomfortable and I don't really want to go anymore I mean that's why I stopped watching or following and going to football matches when I was a teenager. And I, I, I totally leaned into rugby when I was a teenager much more because rugby was a family-friendly environment and I felt safe there. And, um, you know, Luton Town, Kenilworth Road, did not feel like that. Mm, yeah, no, completely. Because it's a fine line, isn't it? You want the excitement and you want the noise and you want the crowd participation that we often see in men's football. Um, and we don't want to treat our female players with kid gloves because we don't also want to reinforce stereotypes that, you know, we should treat them any differently. But then again, as you say, women's football is a much safer space and women prefer going to matches and women in big groups going together is something that you don't really see as much at the men's football. So yeah, we do, we want to preserve our safe spaces, but I think it does benefit a little from having that same enthusiasm. And it was a long way. I mean, the scenes that we saw before the the England Italy game last year at Wembley. (laughs) It's a long way from Trafalgar (laughs) Square and the flares, yeah. (laughs) So, it'll never be that bad. So I was, yeah, I was I was going to get into the question of the comparisons with, with the men's game, partly through. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of talk of 
1966 and a lot of jokes about we've been waiting 60 years for the men to bring it home and the women have said all right we'll just you know we'll do it ourselves then do those sorts of comparisons help or or is it still kind of putting the women's game in the always in the context of the men's and is that there's a kind of a sort of a nostalgia that's that's not helpful well the funny thing as i would say is that what has really really come across uh, in the narrative of how of how this Euros has been told and ha- how it's sort of unfolded in front of us, I think the I think the narrative that's been told at this tournament has been a comparative one, but from from the women's lens. So we have we've always had comparisons, and they've always been through the male perspective. It's always been, uh, you know, men telling us either, you know, women's football isn't as good um, or telling us the reasons why, mansplaining to us the reasons why, or um, or kind of, you know, sort of slightly patronising and saying, well, you know, we, we, you know, this, 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 these are all the reasons why. And then the women themselves having to justify their existence and having to justify why things, why they're, they're not playing as good a kind of quality level as the men. But I think what's happened in this, in this tournament is that that has been completely turned around. And we, for the first time we've heard or really kind of expressed, felt free to express the story of women's football as a story of exclusion and a story of uh, triumph over adversity, which is entirely what it has been. And that's a story the men cannot compete with. Not anymore. You know, sure, there were loads of stories like that in, 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 uh, in the old days. But men's football is such a, you know, is such a rarefied um it's so far away from the from the people who 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 love it and pay to watch it now, you know that. Um, uh, and it's such a corporate beer moth that uh, I think women have really sort of won the uh, won the hearts. They've won the story. They've they've because that's the story that people like. You know, sport loves an underdog. The women have been underdogs for over a hundred years, and finally they get to kind of tell their story their way and people have celebrated not just this team that's what i've loved about this this tournament and it was there in all the bbc commentary um from uh from from that game on sunday we have not just celebrated this team and their achievements we've been talking about and celebrating women who whose names have been utterly ignored and overlooked for for a century of of you know of sporting achievements yeah and talk a little bit about the the specifics of that history of exclusion because what I, mean, I hadn't realized and I'm, sure I'm not the only one until reading your piece and you know in Suzanne Rack's book that the FA banned women from playing in their stadiums for 50 years that it was it was the exclusion it was a deliberate policy of the FA to oh, keep yeah. women out of yeah talking about stadiums i mean stadiums make it sound like oh we we were you know you're not good enough to play at wembley love no they banned them from every single affiliated ground they literally smothered suffocated this is this is genuinely a full out attempt to murder the women's game i'm not you know that's it wasn't anything less than that so what happened was 
Um, you know, if you, I mean, I sort of, uh, I, this was a lovely fact I didn't know until I read Susie Rack's piece, uh, uh, book, sorry, was um, that there, there were references to women's football all the way back to Philip Sidney and his, um, and his poem, A Dialogue Between Two Shepherds. I mean, I think this is amazing. I had no idea that you, you could trace women's football back to the 16th century. Um, and he, you know, he, he, he has this, uh, he has this, couplet in his in his poem that says a time there is for all my mother often says when she with skirts tucked very high with girls at football plays so it's it's like a lot of these sports it's like a lot of English sports and pastimes cricket was exactly the same you go back to when those sports originated or or when they were being you know played they were they were played by boys and girls the same is true of cricket um, I'm I'm currently um, sitting in in Hampshire, not very far from Chawton House, which uh, was Jane Austen's brother's estate that he that he inherited. And Jane Austen and her nieces and nephews all used to play cricket together. So there was this time before, basically, you just got it's the Victorians changed everything. Um, that that women, you know, it was not a big deal for women to play sports. Uh, and then the Victorians come along, uh, you know, John Ruskin says, oh, you know, don't we love women being, you know, beautiful and fragile and ethereal. And, you know, that's it. That's the end of shin pads. That's the end of that's the end of kicking around in the mud. And so, you know, women are kind of like, you know, proscribed from that space. And it was actually an international women's game organised around this time, wasn't there? Or a, a, a sort of game? Yeah. The first international women's game recorded was Scotland versus England and it was it happened in 1881 and this was this was the one that was it was set up by this this impresario Alec Gordon and the players themselves were uh they they were a lot of them were actors or or ballet dancers actually uh they 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 they'd been drawn from the princess's theater in Edinburgh and a local youth ballet company training company uh, so they were very athletic but yeah they didn't have they didn't have any particular background in football and yes yeah, so it was a kind of it was an entertainment as much as a serious sporting contest and um, unfortunately for the women it ended um, pretty badly I, th- I think the first one the first one they did actually manage to um, get through the whole game with the crowd relatively behaving themselves but they they played a second game in Glasgow and this was the one where they the, the crowd rushed the pitch they evaded the pitch because they were so angry and they you know they literally drove the women out of the space the, the, the women had to retreat to their bus I don't think anybody was actually hurt but um you know sticks and things were thrown even as the even as the bus was leaving the ground so you know it wasn't it was not an auspicious start for the women's game um and then what happens sorry long history but all of it's fascinating and I don't want to miss any of it um so then having kind of been you know they've they've had a go at they've had a go at organizing themselves there was there was a kind of suffragist um team called the British Ladies Football Club which was uh which was organized by Lady Florence Dixie and Nettie Honeyball in 1895 and they were doing this for they were doing this for um women's uh you know for women's liberation essentially saying like anything guys can do girls can do too um but yeah there wasn't a great reaction to it let's put it that way there wasn't there wasn't a fondness for it in victorian days it was you know this feeling that this is a bit outre but then obviously the first world war comes along the men have to stop playing the men's leagues get 
you know, get shut down because there ain't any men around to play. And what happens is that the women who are now working in the munitions factories, they start having kickabouts alongside the men in their in their lunch hours after work. And there was one very famous women's team called Dick Kerr Ladies from the Dick Kerr factory uh, who um, who start really organizing. They have a you know, they have a coach. Um, I'm trying to remember who their coach was, where their coach was from, but it, I think it was I think it was Spurs. I think that I think it was a Tottenham Hotspur coach, and they start playing all around the country. They organise games. They're playing to tens of thousands of people. You know, this is a this is a country that's starved of football. Uh, they beat the men's team, the men right? That the that the the, the Ditka women's that they had a women's against men's apprentices game, and, and the women won. That's right. I mean, I would have to double check that that fact because I know that they did challenge them to it. I know that one of the one of the girls broke a guy's arm, didn't he? L- Lily Parr, one of their, I think she was their striker, um, or she was one of their forwards anyway. She she broke a, a guy's arm with her with with her shot. I mean, you know, they were they were a serious unit, and they were very 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 popular, and they were raising because all these games they played were charity games. I mean, obviously they didn't get paid to play. This was not professional football. They were raising thousands of pounds for charity because all of these games were charity matches. And basically, when the war was over, and Edwardian society really wanted Britain to go back to how it was, please, thank you, and very much. You know, let's. Uh, stop stop these women working get them back get them back into the uh, kitchen where they belong there was just a real jealousy and um, discomfort from the men who ran football uh, you know which was obviously run by the football association and so they banned they banned women from playing because they said it was just a it was just not right it was it was an unwomanly activity and so the ban came in in 1921 it did not get overturned until 1971 and not only did you know not only did it have a catastrophic effect on the development of football for women in the UK it had a catastrophic effect everywhere because everybody everybody else in the world all the other um nascent football associations all around the world followed the FA's line and so women's football was essentially outlawed everywhere globally and how was that why was that undone in 1971 was that because of of protest and direct action or how did they overturn the ban well it's interesting i mean look at look at the year when it happened so so it's in the aftermath of of england's world cup win so 1966 england's men win the world cup there is a huge upsurge in excitement interest women are into football at this stage because why wouldn't they be because women's brains aren't different to men's we enjoy sport (laughs) and um, we get excited by it so in the years that follow um bobby moore we get we get a load of women taking up the game um and what and what actually the sort of significant thing i mean i i wrote the reason i get excited about this is because i wrote a chapter uh for the fa's i think they did a book for the 150th um, anniversary of the FA and I was asked to write the chapter on the history of, of women's football and I found things that I just had not known before and this is this is what I mean about like it's taken so long for these stories to get told which is why I get excited about them but basically in the aftermath of that glee of England winning in 1966 there is a, a social club in Southampton the Cunard Social Club 
you know, they're talking about the, the ocean liners here. And they start a little team and that grows and it starts a little league and they are playing at, at grounds where the goals have no nets. You know, this is this is because the ban is still in existence. Um, they're playing just on like whatever pitches and parks. The goals are just the bars that there's a freezing cold lake next to where these pitches are they keep so every time the ball goes into the lake somebody has to like wade in and pick it out but in this really tough environment it actually the competition becomes really good it becomes really fierce uh, and Southampton becomes this breeding ground for talent in England and um, people keep going there to play uh, so they're starting you know there's this revival coming it's building Huey Green who uh, presented it's a knockout he was he was challenged to find an England women's team who could take on a Scottish one, which is really nice, right? Because the very first um, international women's game ever recorded was England versus Scotland. So this is a this is a really nice kind of callback, right? And as a result, he creates a tournament called the Butlins Cup. And the same year, um, Arthur Hobbs sets up a tournament in Deal um, in Kent. And he's the one who really starts lobbying the FA to end the ban. And in fact, the guy who ended the ban, whose name I am going to forget, and I do apologise because I've just said that we shouldn't forget our history, but, but it, was the, it was the outgoing chief executive of the FA in 1970, 1971. Um, it was basically kind of his last act. And I think, you know, there's a bit of me cynically that thinks that's very significant, isn't it? Like, like you know, you only end the ban when you're... <laughs> when you're like when you're done yeah i can i can i can just i can just leave this here i'll just drop this bomb on the table yeah, and walk, walk away, away. <laughs> emma your excitement is so telling because as you were talking i mean as you're talking i'm hearing and learning a few new things as well but it's so fascinating to me that as our lives go on we are still learning new things about you know our sport a sport that i feel very much belongs to us and it's not just that they try to rewrite us out of um you know the history of us playing football but there's also a real market for people unearthing old photographs of women at games because i didn't even know that women went to games until i started looking back at these photographs and realising oh, there was an appetite for it. Women did actually go to sport, uh, go and see football. So it's really interesting to me that not only did they try and rewrite history in this way, but it's also, well, you didn't like it. You weren't there. <laughs> it's just not true. This is, this is it, isn't it? And I think, you know, this is what we do with history. Mm. Our, our little brains struggle to compute big amounts of conflicting information and everything gets simplified down. And if women aren't visible in football, it's because, well, they weren't really into it. And, you know, it was a man's game and et cetera, et cetera. And it's just, I mean, we, we see this happen in every aspect of life. But that's why, you know, it's great when, I mean, you know, Susie Rack's book on, on the history of football was certainly not, by the way, the first history of women's football. Um, and there are, you know, and there are lots of other good books Gemma Clark has written a book called Soccer Women, uh, which came out a few years earlier. But but there were, you know, there have been lots more besides. And 
I think that's great. You know, I think I think it's great that this sport and this its history bears repeated telling because not enough people know about it. I mean, the fact that Tom, you didn't know about the ban, you know, to me that's like that's the most famous bit. That's the most famous bit of it. So if there are people who still don't know that England uh, that women were banned from playing football for fifty years, then then yes, let's let's write more about it, please. And more people probably should know about that as well because then you know the comparison between men's and women's football it'll really highlight how useless that is. (laughs) This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. You, you mentioned earlier, Emma, the, the, the Wiegmann way. And maybe we could talk a bit about, about the management of the England team and how that's changed in the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's... It's funny, isn't it? Because the, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of our hearts that will always kind of... will always cherish and now slightly break for Hope Powell because she was the woman who put in, oh my goodness, so much effort and just so much of her life and her spirit and her soul into England. And I, you know, I just... I really hope that, you know, that uh, she's somebody who is remembered and held up on the pantheon i'm i'm sure she will be uh, as much as uh, as much as serena vegman but i think it is absolutely so telling at that vegman has turned has turned this team around in in the space of less than a year this was a team that lost three consecutive semi-finals in a row under men's management and I, I mean I would be interested I will be interested to hear Natasha's view on this because I feel like I don't I wish I knew more of the inside story but from the outside I feel like you know the Phil Neville era was was the kind of what the heck you know like what how did he how did he get that job you know was it because I mean talk about nepotism was it because his it, his sister was Tracy you know <laughs> kind of like he he had never he hadn't shown any interest in women's football before uh he didn't show much interest in it to be honest after he got the job because he he, he kicked off to into Miami as soon as he got the call from David Beckham but maybe I'm wrong you tell me well, <laughs> no, I don't think you're wrong. <laughs> I think it was a terrible appointment and it's really interesting because <laughs> I think that men enter women's football, well, ex-players enter women's football in a way to break into men's football. So they come into the women's game, they cut their teeth, they learn their practice supposedly and then they you know, clear off out of the arena and return to men's football. So to have a woman in that position is so much it means so much more because you know that this person has a really vested interest in the success of the team and seeing the team go somewhere and you know handing that legacy over to somebody else and building a career for herself within women's football and and you know seeing her own progression so i think that I mean, the fact that neville went to Miami and then got his son and David Beckham's son in the team as his first port of call is really telling of where his heart's at. And he can't iron. <laughs> he doesn't iron. He doesn't wash his clothes. Doesn't doesn't <laughs> wash his own strip. The um <laughs> that having I mean you talk a bit about your 
recent blog post, uh, Natasha, about Emma Hayes managing Chelsea and sort of paying attention to the fact that her players have periods and how that affects the training programmes. And uh, can't imagine Phil Neville taking that into account. It's revolutionary. It's it's stuff that, you know, at my age, I feel that I should know about. I actually um, broke my ankle in the same match that I started my period. So there's definitely a case that, you know, our, our bones and the tissue is softer during um, when we're menstruating. But we, we, we don't know that stuff. You know, we don't know that stuff kind of outside of football. We don't we don't talk about those things like just for ourselves. So it's it was, you know, really fantastic that she came in and thought, right, how am I going to get the best? out of this team how am I going to build on the success that Chelsea have had previously and and that was one of the first things that she looked at and yeah it takes a woman who who knows the the kind of plights of a, of a woman's body to think about those things in that way and if that sounds a little bit kind of gendered and you know maybe sounds too much like I'm gatekeeping women's football for women well I think that this tournament has shown me that perhaps we sh- we should in some ways it's interesting. I thought as soon as, um, well, not as soon as, but in, in the aftermath of watching Chloe Kelly score that goal, um, having come back from an ACL injury, I thought, do you know what? Maybe this is the time. Maybe finally there will be, you know, uh, the the research into ACL injuries that finally explains why women get so many of them and what we, you know, and, and what we do to prevent it. Because that's the thing that has never been discovered. A- ACL injuries have been an absolute plague in women's football from the 90s onwards, mm. ever since, you know, workloads got bigger. But nobody has worked out why women get more of them than men. And that can only be because there hasn't been enough research done because it's women's football and, you know, who, who's who got the time to think about that anyway. So maybe now that we've got a, now that we've got, a, you know, a European championship goal winner coming, coming in back from one of those, maybe somebody somewhere is going to start putting money into that kind of medical research. So an ACL injury, that's a, a sprain of a, of a ligament that connects the your thigh bone to your shin bone. Yeah, and if they, uh, you know, and if, and if teams want to win and if managers want to win, it seems an oversight to not think about those things. I mean, I suppose, that, yeah, the other thing, is there, an, is there any danger of Wiegmann being poached by a men's team? Or do we hope she'd say no? I just, I don't, I don't think we're there yet. I, I think... Um, I think that the excitement that this tournament has given a lot of people is great and I think we're a long way ahead and perhaps, Emma, like you said, we're a long way ahead in terms of other sports Um, but I'm just not sure that we're quite in that space where people, men are looking at the women's game and seeing real talent and comparing that to the men's and still that, that female talent comes out on top. I'm just not sure that we're quite at that point. And also, she's got a World Cup to win. I mean, that woman—that woman is a competitive, a competitive uh, woman. And you know, she's now made history, and she's the only person to lead. You know, uh, two different national sized European championships. She's gonna, she's gonna want to add a World Cup, and it's gonna, it's gonna be with this team. And that, if you kind of look to the look to the future now, there's the after the you wrote about the the Champions League final this year Natasha and you said that every year we wonder if this is our pivotal moment it's like playing one of those coin pusher slot machines at a seaside arcade where the pennies forever shoved slightly closer to the edge but never reach tipping point will this be the tournament that gives the women's game the exposure and sponsorship it needs to grow well the Champions League may not have been but surely the Euros are 
that if this if this isn't a pivotal moment it's really difficult to quantify and obviously we won't know the legacy of this tournament until we looked you know a few years ahead but i think the really interesting thing that i've noted anecdotally is that as the tournament progressed, a lot of the conversation had turned from within women's communities. We weren't really bothered about whether or not men thought that the football was good. It was really very much there for our enjoyment and our entertainment. And it was almost, we want football to be football. But in some ways, it being a standalone women's football meant it made things much easier to just shut out those conversations and those conversations that men were having. And another really interesting thing that I noted is that when I first joined the women's football community, so much of the conversation was about um, how do we make football a safe space for women? How do we make sure that women go and they don't experience racism and they don't experience sexism? And the conversation now has completely changed. And we are now talking about how do we get young girls into football? How do we get young girls playing? How do we get that super access? accessible so that we can start making stars of the future. So in this very short space of time, the conversation has completely shifted. So we're not talking about getting women into pubs. We're talking about getting women into pitches. I mean, Ian Wright said before the game on Sunday that if girls are not allowed to play football, just like the boys can in their PE, then what mm. are we doing? But is, yeah. is there a risk that, I mean, you talked about this already, that sort of the over that men are getting too interested in it and maybe that's, you know, there's a danger there? I think they'll tap out. I think their excitement of England doing something great will only get them so far. And I think the conversation will also change. I think I think there's there's a sense of, you know, we'll applaud the women doing this thing, but it's but it's our space and I think they will want to assert their dominance and I think that support won't continue into life. I think because already conversation has turned to, well, you know, of course England were going to win because it was easier for them to win. And, you know, people, even after us doing this wonderful, amazing, exciting play, people are now, men are now talking about, well, should the pitches be smaller? Should the goalposts be smaller? So it's not as though overnight all those conversations and criticisms have disappeared. They're still talking about them. And I think as the memory of uh, England's success fades for them, they will very much return to form <laughs> not to be too cynical about it it's funny I I, I would say like I, I agree with you I think I, I think I do agree with you about about what's gonna what's gonna happen I think you know these things are these things do kind of bring people together and then you know and then this always happens I mean this is what happens every four years at the Olympics we get very very excited about taekwondo do any of us watch taekwondo the next four years no we do not but anyway I the thing is I'm actually less worried I, I have I have very little concern for women's football in the future and I, I'll tell you why it's because I spend a lot of my time in the cricket world <laughs> And when you look at what the FA is trying to achieve with with women's football and um, and the kind of, you know, the huge viewing figures that they've had for this tournament, the amount of investment that has gone in um, in the last 10 years and, you know, the way the game has changed since its professionalisation in 2017, 2018. I look at that and I think any other sport would be. Uh, you know, would be drooling, would be drooling mm. at this prospect. You know, the, the FA has said it, it's it's aiming for um, 75% of schools to provide access to girls' football um, and 75% of grassroots clubs to have at least one 
girls team well I can tell you those are fantasy figures in plenty of other sports and you know cricket being cricket and rugby being perfect examples those are fantasy figures so I feel like football once again is gonna do just fine because it's uh you know it's an easy sport it's a very accessible easy sport to play and to pick up and if there's kind of true intention around we want to make this a sport for everyone I think it's going to happen I think the one thing that the FA do have to uh do have to kind of look at and that they and they have said they're going to look at is diversity because what's happened is what used to be a women women's football in England was you know, you you looked at the England football team and they were diverse teams. You know, they were a lot more diverse in the last 10 to 20 years than the team that represented England on the pitch on Sunday. And actually, there, you know, Anita Asante has said this, like there's that has been one byproduct, accidental byproduct of professionalization is that we've had the, the the better facilities which have been given access to by Premier League clubs, they are in leafy suburban, you know, or more rural parts of the country. And it has really affected uh, accessibility for young female players who live in inner cities. And so I think the FA has said they're going to address that. They're going to um, they're going to have these 60 talent centres. They're going to start all around the country. So, I th- you know, they're aware of it. They're going to have a go at that. I mean, I I think I think there's no way that uh, women's football kind of doesn't see a big boost from this. They've they've been seeing they've been seeing incredible um, increase in participation over the last ten years. Anyway, Sue Campbell, who is the director of women's football, uh, you know, is a genius in this regard. She's done this in other sports. Uh, she knows exactly what she's doing. She took on, um, you know, she's not afraid to make unpopular decisions as well. Like in, uh, Susie Rack writes about this in her book that, you know, that there really was kind of discomfort and a bit of pushback to the professionalisation of the Women's Super League in 2017-2018 because it disenfranchised some of the legacy clubs, the historic clubs like Doncaster Bells, who had done all the hard work, you know, these are the women who had, you know, they had they had made women's football happen in the 80s when nobody else was. They had dominated the game. They put in all the kind of investment that they could, which, you know, let's face it, there wasn't any money coming from anywhere. And then suddenly when things go professional um, and, you know, suddenly a, a big, you know, big piles of cash are required for you to be in the to be in the top league of the women's super league that's a that's now a kind of requirement uh, that you have to be able to pride all these things Doncaster Bells get relegated out of the league that you know they had essentially helped to evolve and that was really sad but but, but and, and they said this should can we take longer you know give us a chance to get there and Sue Campbell had said uh, and, and you know along with other FA executives no no, we've got to keep pushing. We've got to keep going. We're accelerating this. And honestly, I feel like she's been vindicated. Yeah. I, I mean, oh. Do you feel, yeah, I was going to say, Natasha, do you feel as sanguine about the future of the game in terms of diversity and, and access? I think, look, I think the biggest, the biggest change is how we see ourselves in the sport and our participation. And I think the thing that will drive women's football forward is I think it will win. It has won over new fans. And I think more people will go and watch, um, you know, the WSL when it starts up next season. But there is a part of me that is a little bit cynical because the FA has said, 
in men's football many times over that they're going to address, you know, the, the, the problems that we have with racism within football. So I worry for the game that it is being taken away from the very people that formed this sport in the first place and, and kind of gave it its popularity. Um, I, I do kind of have concerns about how middle class women's football is. And it just looks completely different to the men's teams. You know, the faces that we see in the men's and the women's team are completely different. And I think we really have to look into why that is. But there are some other kinds of diversity where the women's is way ahead of the men's game that someone tweeted yesterday and I'm, I haven't double checked this but I sort of assume it's probably true that there are more out gay and bi players on the England women's team than in the entire men's league yeah and that's and, and you know that's so often been the case in in women's football and women's sport in general um you know there's just been a there's been a much earlier acceptance um celebrate you know first first kind of acceptance slash tolerance then celebration I mean Megan Rapinoe didn't she say um, after the last World Cup, you can't win anything without gays, which is just <laughs> brilliant. You know, I just it's just absolutely phenomenal. And I think that w- women's sport and women's football in particular, because it has had to fight for its existence and because it has always been a case of, um, you know, fighting for equality, it's so much further down the line of um, accessibility or of understanding these issues and caring about them and trying to grapple with them than any than any anyone else. You know, it's 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 miles, it's light years apart from men's sport that just the just the attitudes, because this has always been a sport where women have been fighting to be allowed to play, to be allowed in the space and. You know, so I think that does that does rub off in in other areas as well. And I think that's brilliant. I do. I do agree with that in that I think this era of women's football is definitely seeming to be more open to conversations. It seems to be uh, much closer to second wave feminism than it has ever been. And, you know, just a few years ago, we look at the treatment of Enia Luko and how difficult it was for her to speak out and the repercussions that she faced when she did. I don't know what the difference would be between, uh, you know, then and now, but there definitely seems to be a much more openness and a willingness to at least have these conversations publicly that just wasn't there previously there's there's um i i discovered uh when i was looking back over some of my notes from um uh from researching women's football's history in the past i found this wonderful quote from lady florence dixie who you know if you don't know who she was you've got to look her up because she was incredible she was like this um she was a classic kind of you know multi multi sportswoman in the late 19th century but she was also a journalist um and she wrote football is the sport for women Um, I see a rising on the golden hilltops of progress above the mists of prejudice. Football will be considered as natural a game for girls as for boys. And I think, isn't that wonderful? Like, I mean, you know, it's taken a long time to get there, but it's a kind of, I sort of want that. I want that like woven into, you know, I I want that made in ironwork in, you know, somewhere in the gates at Wembley, you know, that kind of oracular pronouncement. Yeah, absolutely. Emma John, Natasha Chahal, thank you very much. You can read Emma John's piece in the latest issue of the paper. Natasha Chahal's pieces are on the LRB blog. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and the music is by Kieran Grant. <laughs>